Well, when I was uh, in, in college, I, mean, I came, to, came to know the Lord in the middle of my junior year. I was 21 years old, uh, kind of out of a very, very different kind of life uh, than the one that I live now. Um, and I remember going to work. It was the first couple of uh, months after, after I'd really begun walking with the Lord, reading His, his Word daily. And I, I would get in conversations with my coworkers all the time about, about God, about the Bible, the things I was learning. And I remember one particular conversation. I was so excited. I had read something that morning in, in the Word. I don't remember what it was, but I was super hyped. And uh, I remember going to work, and I was, uh, I was talking with one of my co- coworkers. Her name was, was Joy. And um, she said, you seem really happy today. I was like, I am. I said, I've just been reading the Bible. And I shared whatever it was that I had been learning that day. And she kind of just laughed. And I, re- I remember, I was like, I was like why, is, why is that funny? She goes, I don't, I don't know why you need the Bible. And I was like, what do you mean why I need the Bible? I was like, I, I, was like, I, need, I need God to tell me how to live. And I remember she rolled her eyes and just said, she said, you know, I said, she said, I don't need some book filled with fairy tales and little moral lessons to guilt me into how to live. I don't need that. I'm glad it works for you. No offense, but like, I just, I don't need that. And I remember as a new believer, it kind of rattled me a little bit. Um, I knew not everybody loved the Lord because I didn't love the Lord for a long time, but I remember it struck me. And I remember going back and sitting before the Bible and, and, and reading and asking God, it's like, is this really your word? Is, is the Bible really what it claims to be? Because if it is, it changes everything. But if it's just a book of fairy tales and fables and little moral things to control the feeble-minded and keep them in order so that society doesn't, you know, turn over, like what then we're just wasting our time. Delray Baptist Church, one of the things I want to assure you is that God's Word is God's Word. And that God's Word is indeed the most important Word that we can have in this world. That this world is filled with opinions and ideas about what is right and what is wrong and how to live. But God has spoken. There is a God who made the world, and because He made the world, He knows how everything works. And He has spoken through the scriptures to tell us how to live. So the Bible is not just a book of fairy tales and moral messages. It is the very word of God from the, from the creator of the universe and the one who made you, telling you who he is and how we should live. And this is why if you're, if you're new to Delray Baptist Church, one of the things you're gonna notice is that we're, we're always reading the Bible. We're always talking about the Bible. These sermon uh, times, we're, we're reading the Bible and talking about it. In our, in our Bible studies, we have times where we study the Bible. In our counseling sessions, we're going to open the Bible and apply it. In our conversations with one another, we're pointing back to the things that, that God said. Not because we worship the Bible, but because the Scriptures teach us who God is, who we are, and how we are to live. And we're going to see that is true all the way through the book of Acts. This is not just something we believe here in the 21st century, but this has always been true of, of God's church. If we rewind to the beginning of the book of Acts, you'll remember that we saw the risen Lord Jesus who's about to ascend, and he gives his word to the apostles and tells them what they are to do. They are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the earth. And that, that is that mission statement basically is going to be what the rest of the book of Acts is about. How did these witnesses of the risen Lord Jesus go out and tell the world that Jesus came, he died, he rose, and he will come back? 
We saw that after he ascended, that Peter goes into Jerusalem and gave the first, uh, the first sermon there in, um, in Jerusalem some 50 days after Christ had been crucified. And he basically took the Old Testament and interpreted it in light of what Jesus had done and called the crowd to repent. And what we saw at the end of last week was that thousands upon thousands of people heard that they, it was their sin that had put Christ on the cross and that he desired to forgive them. And they turned from their sin and they trusted in him and they were born again. And that's where we left off the, the story last time. Acts chapter 2 verse 41 says, so those who received his word, Peter's word, about Christ and what he has done, they were baptized. It means they made a public profession that we're with Jesus now. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. In one day, from one sermon, 3,000 people turned from their sins and trusted in Christ, and they were born again, and the church was born. That's a mega church right out of the gate. <laughs> 3,000 people right away, they have, they have the first church. This miraculous work of the Holy Spirit has come. Peter's preaching of Christ crucified moved people to repent of their sin and to reconcile with the Son. They publicly identified with Him. And now what? What happens with those people? Well, they formed a new community, a people who are marked by the grace of God and the truth of Christ and the love of the Holy Spirit, and it changes them. They are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and they live in a world that is opposed to the true king. And the rest of the book of Acts shows how they lived it out. And what we're going to do is we are going to slow down here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and we are going to spend five weeks considering what, what marked this early church. What, what were they about if you just get a snapshot of them here, verses 42 through 47, we see these people who are called out of sin into Christ. What did they do? What were they about? We're going to meditate on that together for the next few weeks. Let's read it together, verses 42 through 47. I'll read. Follow along with me here. And they, those 3,000 here, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So over the next five weeks, what you're going to hear is a, kind of a mini-series about marks of a true church. Well, this first church, what, what marked them? What set them apart? We're going to see all sorts of things, but, but today we're going to be considering specifically this, this first bit that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. This church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. So if you want a big idea of what this sermon's about, is that we follow Jesus by following the words of the apostles. 
We follow Jesus by following the words of the apostles. The teachings of the apostles, as contained in, in, the, in the scriptures here, they, are the, they teach us how to follow Jesus. And we're going to see this early church, and we too were to be devoted to them. So again, the, the phrase we'll be considering this morning, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So these new believers here, they, they're gathering as the church, the, the first church. And they are all keenly aware that God has saved them from their sin. And that this new community now must be guided and guarded by what God tells them to do. This is why they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. The word devoted here, it means to, to persist in something, to be closely associated with something. It's a word that describes a, a heartfelt relationship. These new believers were, were people who, who loved God's Word. And this is what believers are. Believers love God's Word. They listen to God's Word. They are led by God's Word. We're, we're not to be the kind of people who, who listen to the Bible at, at church, kind of endure this, this message for however long it goes on. And then that's all we ever think about the Scriptures. But rather, believers are people who have been born again from death to life, who are now awakened to the fact that we need God to tell us how to do everything. What to say, what not to say. How to step, how not to step. How to use time and energy and, uh, and money and resources. How do we, what do we do, Lord? Show us the way. As we heard from that Psalm 119, we're sojourners on this earth. We don't know where to go. That is our boast. We boast in our ignorance. We boast in our weakness. That God the Creator knows what we need, not us in ourselves. Our entire lives would be marked by ongoing listening and learning and growing in God's Word. This is what marks believers. I remember seeing this afresh um, about 10, 10 or 11 years ago, uh, right when I came to visit Washington, D.C. I was thinking about, we were, our family was thinking about coming here and going to Capitol Hill Baptist Church, being part of the internship there and all that kind of stuff. But, um, and I met a guy named John. John was a brand new believer. He had just come out of a background of being a cocaine dealer. So he had been a cocaine dealer for a number of years, and um, he had uh, somehow had gotten on the internet and started listening to sermons, and he listened to a sermon from John chapter 3 saying that you must be born again. And he realized he must be born again. <laughs> he didn't know what that meant. So he started Googling that pastor and found out that that pastor um, was friends with a pastor in Washington, D.C., where he lived nearby. So he went to Capitol Hill Baptist Church, met Mark Dever, and he asked him, what does it mean to be born again? And Mark was happy to tell him, and John got born again. He, he saw his sin, and he turned from his sin, and he trusted in Christ, and he was alive. And I remember I got to be around John in those early, in those early years, and that brother, everywhere he went, he had his Bible. Every time he had a spare moment, he would open it and he would read it. And I remember talking to him about it, and I came to, under, I came to learn that in the first 19 months of him being a believer, he read the entire Bible cover to cover four times. Four times in 19 months. He said, and the reason is because his entire life had been a lie. And he realized that all of a sudden, there's now truth. 
There's light in this dark world, and I now know who I am and who my creator is and what he wants from me and how I'm supposed to interact with other people. And he said he fell in love with God's word, and he's never gotten over it. That John, by the way, his name is... um, John Joseph at Chevrolet Baptist Church. I knew he's a pastor at Chevrolet Baptist Church now, just across the river. Um, John loves, he still loves God's word, but I remember those early days just watching him on fire and devouring God's word. And as we're going to watch this church here in the book of Acts, we're going to continually see that the church is not led by their heart and what feels wise to them. They're not going to be led by the world's wisdom and what's popular and everybody says is right. They're not going to be led by false teaching, even though it'll be tempting, this constant threat of smooth-sounding theologies. But rather, their guide is the authoritative word from heaven, as the apostles have given it. Now, as we think about this, what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, we're going to consider four reasons Uh, that we are to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. This was true for the early church, and it is true for us as well. We're going to see that the apostles' teaching um, derives from the master. The apostles' teaching derives from the master. Secondly, the apostles' teaching defines our mission. It defines our mission, what we're to be about. The apostles' teaching also, thirdly, dictates our message. It dictates our message. And fourthly and finally, it develops our membership. It develops our membership. So the apostles' teaching, it derives from the master. It comes from from God himself. It defines our mission, what we're to be about. It dictates our message, what we're supposed to say to the world and to one another. And it develops our membership. It shapes the community of, of the church. So let's consider first here that the apostles' teaching derives from the master. The apostles' teaching derives from the master. So what the apostles said and what they wrote comes from the risen Lord Jesus. An apostle is one who is sent under the authority of another. So so apostles, you have to understand, they are not just these rogue religious guys who have their own YouTube channel and a blog. Like that's not who they are. Rather, they are men who have personally been commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus. They're men who we saw back in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Peter says, had been with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. They saw him after his resurrection. They had personally sat under his teaching for those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. That's who these apostles were, and that they had personally been commissioned by the Lord Jesus. So God commissioned these apostles to build the church. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the the apostles gave the church the truths uh, that Jesus taught them during his earthly ministry. The, The apostles gave the church the truths that Jesus taught during his 40 days after the resurrection. And the Holy Spirit gives the church the the truths that the Holy Spirit brought to mind later on, which, which Jesus said this would happen, right? John 14, 26, this is speaking to the apostles. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, which we know in Acts 2 has already come for them now, 
but he was looking forward. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus says, after I ascend, I'm going to give the Holy Spirit, and he is going to remind you of the things I taught you, and those are the things you're supposed to tell everybody else. That's the message of the apostles. So the apostles' teachings derive from the master, which means that the apostles' teaching is to be received with the very authority of Jesus behind it. The apostles' teaching comes with the very authority of Jesus behind it. Let me tell you why this is important, okay? So in our house, we have, we have an upstairs and a downstairs. And let's say that I wanted uh, the kids to, to come down and to clean up the kitchen. If, if there's three kids upstairs, and I say one of the kids, say, hey, go upstairs and ask the kids to come down and clean up the kitchen. And they go upstairs and they come down and clean the kitchen losers, and then comes back downstairs. Um, what do you think the other kids are going to say? No, loser, no, we're not doing that. Because who are you, right, roommate? Like, you're not, who are you? But if I say, you go tell them, Daddy said, to come downstairs and to clean the kitchen, please. And then they go upstairs, and they say, Dad says to please come clean the kitchen. They still don't listen, but they're supposed to. <laughs> Why, right? <laughs> no, you guys do a great job. You're very helpful. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why are they supposed to listen? Because they don't come in their own nine-year-old authority. They come with the authority of mom and dad. Mom and dad said, come downstairs. There's authority behind that message because of the one who gave it, right? It's the same thing with the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching is not just a bunch of guys who got together and said, hey, let's write a book, and let's write a book to a bunch of churches, and let's come up with our own religious ideas. No, this is the Lord Jesus gives them the teaching and tells them to give it to the church. So what this means for us is that the teaching derives from the master, and we who receive the teaching are to be word-submitted witnesses. We are to be word-submitted witnesses. Everything that we do individually as Christians and corporately as Christians is done in submission to the clear teaching of the apostles. Their interpretation of the Old Testament, guided by the Holy Spirit, every word of the New Testament, bear weight for us. This shows up in the life of our church. Everything in the statement of faith, in our church's statement of faith, the summary of what we believe, if you'll look there, there's verses all the way through it. Because it's not just, hey, this is what we think works here. This is what God says we're to be about. This is why every song that we sing, you can trace it back to verses in the Bible. It's, it's derived from the scriptures. We want to sing true things about God. Every counseling session, every membership conversation, every bit of church discipline, every sermon, everything that we do as a church together must be submitted fully to God's Word. So this, this ensures that we are the sort of witnesses that Christ calls us to be. So I want to ask you, are you a Word-submitted witness? What I mean that is you are a witness of, for Christ. This is what He's called you to be if indeed you are in Christ. 
He's called you to be a witness for him. The question is, are you submitted to God's word? Do you listen for God's word and do you respond to God's word with, yes, Lord? I think our natural posture is to not be like that. And I don't know what it is, but I've seen recently, not, certainly not in every conversation I've been having, but I've noticed a, it seems like an increasing conversation around whether God's word is really sufficient and whether we really need to listen to it or not. Listen, all of us are going to feel that defensiveness when we hear God's word come at us. And it points out things in us that need to be corrected and redirected. But I would ask you, are, are you submitted to God's word? And are you submitted to receiving God's word from one another? This is part of the way that God has called us to be as a church. We're not supposed to be defensive when correction from God's word comes. And listen, I understand we live in a day, and I think it's always been like this, but, but we really feel the suspicion of authority. And it's understandable because there's a lot of, there's been a lot of spiritual abuse there have been a lot of people who have claimed to come using God's word and have wrongly used God's word and have hurt a lot of people. But you've got to know that Satan wants to use that to tempt God's people to not be fully submitted to whatever God's word says. So brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to remember that God is good. His authority is good and life-giving. The apostles' word is good and life-giving. Church members and church leaders who are submitted to God's word, their counsel when, when rooted in the scriptures is good and life-giving. Would you just pray that our church would be a church that believes that? That we would be a church who knows that the apostles' teaching derives from the master and that we would be word-submitted witnesses for Christ. Pray that would mark us. Pray it would mark me. So the apostles' teaching derives from the master, so we're supposed to be word-submitted witnesses. Secondly, the apostles' teaching defines our mission, so we are to be word-spurred witnesses. The apostles' teaching defines our mission. So Jesus taught the apostles what he wanted the church to be about until he returned. And what he taught them, they've passed down to us which means that the apostles' teaching must define our mission as the church. We are to be word-spurred witnesses. So let me ask you some kind of rhetorical questions. Should churches organize and fund efforts to dig wells to provide clean water to villages in impoverished countries? Should churches call for police reform to ensure that police officers use authority properly in our, in our city? Should churches encourage support for police officers who risk their lives to protect our city? Should churches labor to end the evil of abortion in our country? Should churches work to end homelessness and provide support for impoverished families? Should churches work to help children in the foster care system and to help parents of those children? Should churches provide housing and resources for migrant families who are fleeing war-torn countries? 
Should churches work to ensure that oppression of racial minorities is not overlooked or propagated? Those are all good endeavors that members of our church have actively engaged in 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 recent years. But one of the things that we must do and must always keep very clear before us is what must the church be doing? What must we be doing? Because Jesus taught the apostles the mission of the church, and that mission must define our mission as a church. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then again from Acts, Acts 1.8. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the, to the outermost parts of the earth. So what is the mission of the church? The primary mission of the church corporately, who we must be, is to be disciples of the Lord Jesus who make disciples of the Lord Jesus. That is the clear teaching of the apostles, that we are to be disciples who make disciples. So the mission of the church is to call people who are not following Jesus to repent of their sin and to be reconciled to God's Son. And the mission of the church is to help people who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ to grow up into spiritual maturity in Christ, just as Jesus said, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That is the mission of the church. So the mission of the church, what the church must be about corporately, what we can never, we can never forsake, is evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism, which is calling people who aren't following Jesus to turn from their sin and to start following Jesus, and discipleship to help those who are following Jesus follow Jesus all the more faithfully. That is very clearly the mission of the church. Now, there are many things that churches corporately and individually, Christians, can do. But there is one thing that we must do. We must do what nobody else on the planet is doing. We must call people to repent of their sins, to be reconciled to Jesus, and to worship Him as He is worthy. There's no NGOs out there doing that. There's no government programs out there supporting that mission. But it is the most important mission on the planet is to call people to be made right with their Savior and after they have, to help them to walk rightly related to Him. As one person said, the church's goal is not to transform the world, but to live together as a transformed world and to invite the nations in word and deed to the one who is able to transform us all. The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus. Now, this in no way means that we can be apathetic toward our neighbor's suffering. 
Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is crystal clear about this. But what it does mean is that we, when we look out into the world that is filled with nothing but suffering and the options abound for ways that we can love our neighbor as ourself, what we've got to keep central through the whole thing is calling people to follow Jesus. As John Piper once rightly said, we care about all suffering now and especially eternal suffering later. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the dangers that the church can fall into. There's there's two ways, two two dangers here. I'm going off script, so I'm going to lose my place. Two dangers. One is that you can just be so consumed with only ever talking about eternal suffering that you, you forsake what else he calls you to do, which is to live justly with your neighbor and to love your neighbors yourself and to find ways to alleviate the pain that's right in front of you. And you just throw out the, 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 the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? But then the other temptation is, is to be so focused on all the suffering that abounds to forget that we need to be calling to repent and to believe in Christ. Both of those dangers abound in our day. So the apostles' teaching makes clear to us that we must aim to eliminate the suffering of eternity apart from God and to war against the suffering in this life that comes from sin. We do that through evangelism and through discipleship. We want to help people to walk with Jesus. And in another sense, the church's mission is also for its members to be faithful disciples of Christ and citizens of Christ's kingdom wherever he places them. Just think about this. Right now, we're all huddled up under the banner of Christ is Lord. Now, if you're visiting here today and you know yourself to not be a Christian, we are so thankful that you are here, and we encourage you to hear Christ is Lord. Turn from your sin. Trust in him. We want to talk with you more about that after the service, or right now if you want to. We'll be happy to. But for those of you who are Christians, like this is our banner. We do this now as we're huddled up. And as we go out, that banner remains. We still carry that banner. But imagine all of the different places that we go Monday through Saturday. All of the different neighborhoods. All of the different areas of influence that we have in our, in our community. We're in that place. We're called to be salt and light. Looking of how to extend the, the, the name of Christ there, showing his compassion and his truth there, wherever he places us. We, we love our neighbor, and we use the influence that God has given us in those places to uphold righteousness in many ways. Like, like the ones that I mentioned at the beginning there when I read that list, and 10 billion more of them. So hear this, it is right for every Christian to be good stewards of the gifts, the convictions, the opportunities, and the resources that God has given to bring about change in our homes, in our communities, in our country, and around the world. But one of the things that I think is very important for us to think about how we do that is not everyone in the church will be burdened for the same causes as we are, to the same degree that we are. And one of Satan's temptations is to stir up division over, oh, you care about this but not that. Just know that he wants to prowl on that front. God has put together a diverse body here with all sorts of different burdens. 
And one of the things that we do as we grow in love under God's word is we learn to listen to one another. To say, man, you really seem to, to care about this. Tell me more about that. Show me where you get it in the scriptures and then help me understand what do you think it means for us to faithfully live that out? How are you doing that? How can I pray for you? Do you see any opportunities for me to do that where God has placed me? Let me share with you something else that I see in the scriptures that I'm really burdened by and let's encourage one another in that so that we can pray for one another and labor for one another to as we bring about change in our culture, it's always done though under the banner of the most important thing is Christ. So, may there be many more wells of water in places where there's not clean water. But if Christians do it, it must be done with pointing to there's one who gives water that if you drink from, you'll never thirst again. And his name is Jesus. So we come in his name. We want to come and dig a well to serve you because we care about what happens to you. We think God wants you to, to know life and to be healthy. We want that. We want to help you in that. But we want you to know there's another life that's more important. And there's another health that's more important, and it's your soul's health. Look unto to Christ. So, brothers and sisters, we are free to engage in all sorts of social causes. And as individual Christians, we should be active in showing the love and the truth of God wherever we can. But be careful to not allow well-intended activism to choke out the apostles' teaching on the mission of the church. If you took an inventory of the way that you spent your time, your energy, your resources, where would it all be? What, what, would, you, what would you look at? I, I wonder if, if we looked at how, how much have you spent time talking about masks, vaccines, Roe v. Wade, 10,000 other things that you could think of. Police reform, racial injustice, all those are good things. But look at it compared to how much are you talking to people about Christ and about his kingdom and about turning from your, their sin and trusting in him. This is not to guilt you or make you feel shame. I think in God's kingdom, though, we must keep the priorities right. The apostles' teaching instructs us that his yeah, that, that the apostle teaching must define our mission. In light of that, we are to be word-spurred witnesses. Thirdly, the apostle's teaching dictates our message. The apostle's teaching dictates our message. So we must be word-saturated witnesses. So uh, we live as witnesses of Jesus, and our words should be informed by his words. Our message to the world and to one another is a message that Jesus gave to his apostles. We are to be word-saturated witnesses. So the apostles' message, and when you read through the book of Acts, I spent last, last night kind of reading through, um, didn't make it all the way through, but read through a bunch of the book of Acts, and it's really clear what the message is. Jesus is alive from the dead, and you've got to prepare to meet him. Like, that's the message of the apostles. He's alive from the dead, we saw him, and he's coming back soon, so you better get, better get ready. We need to rightly respond to him now as we prepare for his soon approaching return. That was the message to the unbelieving crowds. We saw it in Acts chapter 2, we'll see it in Acts 4 and other uh, sermons, public declarations. All the apostles have basically the same message. As the Christ, 
Jesus is restoring all things. He is the promised one who's come to fix what sin has stolen from the world. That's who he is. And as the Savior, Jesus received God's wrath on the cross. He died by us, and he died for us. It was our sin that put him there. But it was his mercy that put him there so that our sins would not have to be held against us, but be forgiven, paid in full if we would turn to him. And as Lord, Jesus rose from the dead now, and he reigns forevermore. He defeated death. He ascended to glory. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he rules from heaven as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that demands a response from everybody on this planet. Listen to this in Acts chapter 3. We'll get to in a few weeks. This is Peter speaking. He says, Repent therefore. He had just laid out everything that Jesus did, what I just said. Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The message to the world, the unbelieving world, is to repent, to turn from your rebellion against the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you do, he says right there, forgiveness of your sins awaits. Refreshment from the sorrows and the sufferings of this life awaits. God will meet you. Doesn't mean suffering goes away. Doesn't mean sorrow is extinguished forever for the believer now in this life. But he says that he'll be with you in it. That's good news. And someday, soon and very soon, when he returns, sin and suffering will be no more. And if you turn from your sin and trust in him, you'll go with him to that land. But if you will not turn from your sin, if you will dig in in your rebellion and continue to say his word that has no bearing on me, if that is your persistent posture, then the apostles would say, and we would in turn say, Prepare for judgment. Acts 17.30, the Apostle Paul saying, God now commends all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The message of the world is repent or prepare for judgment. And the person who's going to judge you is the one who suffered and died for sinners, who now calls you to turn and be reconciled to him. But if you resist him on that last day, you will stand in your own righteousness, which might be better than a lot of people in the room, but it's not compared to him. He is holy and has never done any evil. And compared to him, all have sinned and fall short of his glory. And because he's good, he will judge all evil completely and totally and rightly, including yours. But that's why, (laughs) that's why Peter would give this message, Acts 2.40, save yourselves from this crooked generation. God doesn't want you to perish in your sin. Ezekiel 18, do you think I delight in the death of the wicked? No, but they would turn and live, says the Lord. God desires sinners to be reconciled with him. Don't stay in your sin. Flee to Jesus. He will forgive you. He will heal you. That's the message to the world that the apostles gave and that the church is to be heralding until Jesus 
returns. Now, proclaiming this message will be met with faith, some will believe, but also with opposition. Jesus promised that if we followed him and proclaimed his word, suffering would follow. Listen to this, what he says to the apostles in John 15, 20. Remember that the, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. What that means is if you're going to go out and you're going to proclaim this, this message that Jesus is the true king and that everybody has sinned against him and everybody needs to turn from their sin, whatever that may be, and trust in him, there will be opposition. It may be the eye roll of my, you know, my friend at the time, Joy, who mocks the Bible, or it may be much more severe, as brothers and sisters throughout church history have shown by giving their very life for Christ. The apostles found this to be true. We'll see in a couple weeks in Acts chapter 4. The religious leaders called Peter and John and charged them, this is chapter 4, verse 18, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They said, they said y'all need to stop. And he said, listen, I'll let y'all figure out if you want to obey God, but God told us to keep heralding this message. So you can do whatever you want to to us, but we're going to keep, as long as we have tongues and as long as we have a voice, as long as we have breath, we're going to keep proclaiming it. And they did. They went out. And they got arrested again, chapter 5. The high priest says, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Meaning you're saying, we're the reason Jesus died, which they are. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they, the religious leaders, heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Delray Baptist Church, our message is the same message as the apostles. The apostles' teaching dictates our message. We must be word-saturated witnesses who are willing to endure whatever suffering may come for the sake of heralding his name and allegiance to him above all things. Because soon and very soon he will return. And on that last day, I can promise you, we will never regret being faithful to him. You will never regret on that last day having been bold for Christ in this day. You will never regret on that last day obeying Jesus when everybody told you not to. You will not regret that. So let your heart and your mind travel to that day and may it give you courage in this day as you proclaim his name. So that's the apostles' word to the unbelieving crowds. But then the witnesses that the apostles spend tons of time with the church as well, right? And, and, and we do as well. We certainly are heralding to the world, turn from your sin and trust in Christ, but we also take the apostles' message and we give it to one another. Uh, we remind each other that we are citizens of Christ's kingdom. We now follow by faith King Jesus in a world that opposes him. 
and our message to one another, keep trusting him. Amay, keep obeying him. Kyle, keep coming to him. Right? Adam, keep seeking his face. Right? Day by day, as long as it's called a day, we encourage one another with his word. Oh, and your sufferings and your sorrows, dear sisters. He is with you. Don't give up. In your fears and your failures, brothers, he is with you. Don't give up. Keep risking your lives for him. This is what Hebrews tells us to do, right? Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So what do we do? Exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our message to one another is keep trusting Jesus, keep clinging to Jesus, keep following him, even when it's hard, even when it hurts, even when it feels like you're gonna lose everything because of it. We wanna help each other fight sin's deceitful snares. Keep following Christ, exhorting one another, reminding one another that, as the Apostle John told us, if you've sinned, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, so go to him. Confess your sins to him. He, he says that he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness if you will but confess. Confess your sin to God. And then take the Apostle James who tells us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another to be healed. That's our message to one another. Don't hide in the darkness of your sin, but bring it into the light of God's throne room and give it to him. Christ has paid for it already. And then go to a brother or sister in Christ and, and confess to them so they can pray for you and you can know the healing and the grace of God. In your sorrows, remind one another that soon and very soon the Lord Jesus will return and we will be with him, that he's the God of all comfort, that he's near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Take God's word and apply it to one another. This is even what the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonian church after it appears that they had had a rash of deaths in the, the congregation and everybody was brokenhearted over the fact of whether they'd ever see their loved ones again. And he reminded them that soon the Lord Jesus will return and he will bring back those who have trusted in Christ and their bodies will be reunited. And they'll, be, they'll, they'll be given new bodies and we'll be caught up with them and we'll be together with him and with them forever. And he says, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, encourage one another with these words. He says, take the words that I'm giving to you as an apostle and let it be what you remind each other of all the time. This is what's to mark the church community is that our message is word-saturated. We are word-saturated witnesses. Now, before I move on to the fourth and final point here, I just want to say, I want to say thank you to this church. This is not a perfect church. The longer you're here, you'll see that, especially because I'm a part of it. But I am so blessed to be in a church where I see regularly people striving to encourage one another with God's word, to teach it to one another, to remind one another of promises. I mean, if I went through my text messages this week, um, I don't know how many times I could find verses that somebody sent me and said, hey, I saw this today and it made me think of you. Keep trusting the Lord or thank you for this or thank you for that. And there's verses attached to it. Dairy Baptist Church, I want to encourage you. Thank you for being a flock that continues to give the word to one another. And I would just encourage us, let us grow all the more in doing that. 
Share God's word with one another. Encourage one another with the, with the apostles' teaching. Let us be a word-saturated bunch of witnesses to the world and to one another. And then fourthly and finally, the apostles' teaching develops our membership. So we see that the apostles' teaching derives from the master, so we're to be word-submitted witnesses. The apostles' teaching derive, or defines our mission, so we are to be word-spurred witnesses. The apostles' teaching dictates our message, so we are to be word-saturated witnesses. And now the apostles' teaching develops our membership. We are to be word-shaped witnesses. So the way we live together as believers is to be shaped by the Word of God. Um, we're to be Word-shaped witnesses. That means all of our words, which we just talked about a little bit with the message, but all of our actions, all of our ambitions are called to be in conformity to Christ and to His Word. Romans chapter 12 tells us that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our mind is to be renewed according to what God's Word says, and that is going to change. It's going to make our lives living sacrifices, it says, to where everything that we think, do, and say is going to be surrendered to Christ for His glory and for the good of others. That's what's supposed to mark our life together as a, a church. And we see this in, in, the, in the early church. Um, Look even just again at chapter 2, verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers, verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What marked this church? What were they? They were generous. They were sacrificial. That's what marked their community together. They're like, you, you, you having a hard time finding food? Hold on. eBay, what can I sell? I'm going to sell that. I'm going to sell that picture. There we go. Get it. Here's some money. Let's help. Like they, that's what they're doing. They're thinking, I've got something. I can get rid of it in order to get something to give to you. That's the way they're thinking. Everything I have is from the Lord anyway. How can I use that to help you? Now, Why? Well, it's because they're following who? Who are they following? They're following Jesus. And what marked his life? Right? I mean, Jesus was the one who leads us with generosity and with sacrifice. I mean, he's the one who washed the disciples' feet on the very night they would use those feet to run away. Like, that's who we follow. So our lives together are supposed to look like his life. It's being manifested by the Holy Spirit in our midst. We're to be the hands and feet of Christ in our midst. The apostles' mission was to teach the disciples to obey all that he has commanded them. His commandments are reflective of his character. The life of Jesus should mark the lives of the members of the church. So together, I show you the love of Jesus when we obey the commandment to love one another as Christ loved us. Forgive one another. Be tenderhearted toward one another. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. That means when we got beef, which we would never have because that never happens in this church, but hypothetically saying that if people ever didn't get along in a church, that they would, they would seek, they would say, Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 says that I'm supposed to leave my offering at the altar and go and make something right with somebody. 
because Jesus came, he left everything to come and make things right with me. So I'm supposed to, that's supposed to mark the way that I'm supposed to feel toward others. And I'm supposed to seek them out and forgive them. Now, there, we need nuance in that. We need wisdom. Not every situation is the same. Not every bit of broken relationship looks the same. This is why we've got to talk about it with one another and seek God's wisdom and fast and pray for exactly how do we do that in this particular situation. But what should mark us is that the life together here is different. We don't gossip about one another. We don't slander one another. We don't backbite one another. We don't betray one another. Why? Because we're Christians. Because God in Christ has loved us. We're to speak the truth. In one. We don't lie to one another. We speak the truth in love to one another because we're members of one another. Christ has united us as his his body. So, brothers and sisters, this is why I encourage us, read the Bible together. Talk about what it means and seek to apply it together. Read Romans and see that we're all justified by God's grace and that, that what that does is it produces a love in us that helps us to cooperate for missions. That's what Romans is all about. Read the Corinthian church and see the danger of, of worldliness and the way that it tears the church apart and help us to, to to see worldliness in one another and confess it and, and give it to Jesus that he might heal us so that he can be manifested in our midst. Read Galatians together and, and fight against the, the legalism that suffocates joy and produces competition. But rather, let us be filled with the Spirit and, and, and love one another and, and you pursue unity together. Read Ephesians together. The first three chapters, 29 times, it talks about who we are in Christ. Our identity in Christ is the most important thing about us. Not every other identity that we could have, and that informs the way that we live. Read Philippians together and see that our suffering, the circumstances of our suffering now shouldn't steal the joy that we have because Christ is with us in the midst of our suffering. Study Colossians and see that the philosophies of the world, they are real and they are strong, but, but Christ is the truth from heaven. Follow him. Study the pastoral epistles together and see that there is indeed false teaching that abounds. So we must be on guard and help one another to watch out for it. How do we do that? By going to the Word. Read Philemon together and see the sort of radical reconciliation that God calls His people to have, even in the face of everything that the world would be doing. Study Hebrews together and see the glories of Christ presented before the church and the way that, that God gives the church to help one another day by day until we see His face. Read James together and see that God does not want any kind of just religion up here. He wants real, practical, tangible religion that changes your life and is going to produce love for others who are suffering and who need it. Read through, what else is it? First Peter, read through the pastoral, uh, Peter's epistles, right? That we are, in a, we are exiles in this world. Let's not put down roots too much here, but to remember that we are, we are exiles and aliens here and that when suffering comes, that we have a Savior that we look to who, who taught us how to entrust our souls to the one who judges justly. Let's look at that. Let's read the John's epistles together and to see that the true Christianity is going to be marked by real obedience and love for one another. Read Jude and see the, the danger that lurks of false teaching, but that how Christ will hold you fast all the way to the end. Read the book of Revelation and remind one another that Jesus walks among the churches and he sees everything that's coming, everything that's happening, and that for us what's coming is a day when he'll take us to a land where there's no more sorrowing or suffer, sorrow, sorrow, suffering, 
shame, pain, guilt, sin, no more. Read the scriptures together. Talk about what they mean and how they apply. God uses that to shape our church. It creates unity of mind and humility of heart and cultivates courage in the face of whatever we face. So Delray Baptist Church, my prayer for us is that we would be word-submitted witnesses, that we would be word-spurred witnesses, that we would be word-saturated witnesses and word-shaped witnesses. So as we gather together and scatter until we see his face, Christ might be made known in our midst. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to be a people who, who love your word and believe your word and trust what you say in your word. And Lord, would you help us to, to help one another to follow you no matter what the cost. Father, we pray that you would help um, yeah, you, you would help us to believe the things that we've heard, that you would help us to be submitted humbly before your word, guard us from defensiveness and from all the reasons that we would have excuses to not obey. Or would you help our mission to be defined by the mission that is so clearly laid out in your word? Would you guard us from excuses uh, on all sides of that? And Lord, would you help our message to be shaped by the message that we've received? And oh God, would you mark this membership? Would you develop Christ-likeness here in our midst? Would you do that by helping us together to follow your word in all the ways that you have called us to? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.